You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Timothy Muirhead and I will be your host today. With me is my co-host, Teresa Morrow. Teresa, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing, Tim? For the listeners, this week was Teresa's birthday and she <laughs> held the strangest birthday party I've ever been to, a COVID-style online birthday party that was a dance party. And she told me what she was going to do and I was like, in my head, that is never gonna work. This is not, <laughs> I don't know what's gonna happen here. And it was awesome and everybody had a great time and uh, congratulations on pulling that off, oh, Teresa. That thanks, was amazing. Tim. Yeah, I was telling somebody, yeah. uh, we did it over Zoom and she was like, oh, at my work, we're hosting webinars and stuff. I'm like, knowing how to run Zoom is like the new knowing how to run Excel. It's like that <laughs> value added skill that everybody should really get. Well, happy birthday. Thanks. Today, we have gathered some real heavyweights in the world of sound design for kids animation. This is a really fun area of sound design that both Teresa and myself make our living working in for the most part. And as much fun as it is, there are some parts of the gig that are quite tricky to navigate. In many ways, sound designers and editors get to open their toolbox wide open and make things sound like whatever they want. But we also have to be aware of how edgy and scary we make those sounds because the viewers are so young and quite frankly, easy to scare away. Scheduling can be severely compressed in this genre. Interaction with directors can be in short supply because the directors are overseeing so many different episodes and elements concurrently. So it's lots of ins and outs of this area. So we want to bring together some heavy hitters to talk about it and kind of dig deep into this genre. So let's meet our experts today. First up, we have Heather Olson, who's working at Advantage Audio in Burbank. She has worked on lots of animated series, including Trolls, The Beat Goes On, Gravity Falls, one of my favorites, Pig, Goat, Banana Cricket. She has earned a bunch of Emmy and Golden Reel nominations. Welcome to the podcast, Heather. Heather, what's your favorite animated show that you've worked on? Mm, that is a tough question, but I think I have two favorites looking back. I think it would be Gravity Falls. That was a lot of fun. And also The Boondocks, which is a more adult animation, but that was a right. lot of fun. It is interesting how we all work on a lot of kids shows. And when we get a show for adults, we just relish it. We're like, oh, yes, I can make this sound so much scarier and make the characters actually get hurt. <laughs> um, also joining us today is Dom Lawrence, who's based out of Derry in Northern Ireland. He works freelance under the moniker Ear of the Dog. Dom has worked on My Little Pony, The Octonauts, my daughter's current favorite show. It's on just about 24 hours a day right now. A bunch of different Transformers projects as well. He's received nominations for the Irish Film and TV Awards. Dom, what's the animation industry like in Ireland right now? Uh, it's actually exploding. It's Well, it's a kind of exploded, really. Um, the past 10 years, it's um, the government brought in a really good kind of tax break. So there's been a lot of kind of investment, uh, a lot of skills training, and there's companies popping up all over the place. So there's a real good kind of community around and uh, lots of skills kind of being shared between companies and whatever one company does, the next company kind of looks at it's like, oh, we could kind of do that. And so it's all improving everyone really, you know, just the standards just constantly being raised and it's completely gone international now. So it's a really good place to be, you know. Perfect. Welcome to the show. Finally, we have our returning champion, Kate Finan. <laughs> Kate has been on the show a couple times before. She's the owner of Boombox Post in Burbank. She's a sound supervisor of a nearly endless list of animated series, including Muppet Babies, Invader Zim, Mickey and the Road Sir Racers, Future Worm. 
They've all featured her sound work. Kate has a bunch of Emmy and Golden Reel nominations in her back pocket. Welcome to the show, Kate. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. And I just want to mention, too, that I co-own Boombox with uh, my partner, Jeff Schiffman. I don't do it all by myself, so I want to give big, big credit to him for he's a big driving force of the creativity and, and all the awards and things. So don't want to leave him out. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. I don't know how I missed that. It did say co-owner at one point, but uh, I guess that got accidentally <laughs> edited out. But thank no. you for the correction. Yeah, we no wouldn't want to leave Jeff out. He's a former guest on the show, too. We all love Jeff. So this is an interesting one because Teresa and I, although we are the hosts, we're also kind of going to be panelists today. So we also have Teresa Morrow, my co-host, who is a re-recording mixer and a sound supervisor on Sunny Day Eleanor Wonders Why. What other shows have you worked on recently, Teresa? Uh, Nina's World for NBC Kids. It's all a blur, you know. <laughs> That's a so good list. She do, does a lot of mixing for that as well as sound supervising. Yeah, and, and I drop uh, in on Paw Patrol occasionally too. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And my name is Tim Muirhead, and I'm the sound supervisor on Paw Patrol, as well as uh, in the past, Bakugan Battle Brawlers, uh, Mother Up, um, lots of other shows that aren't coming to me right now. Cyber so, Chase. Uh, oh, Cyber Chase. Yes, yeah. I forgot about that one. It's been a long time since Cyber Chase. <laughs> Cyber Chase, where the main actor was recorded in a metal booth that rang constantly Ooh. in his house. It, good times those were. <laughs> you ever heard, heard people complain about L.A. vocal booths? That was like the uh, epitome of bad L.A. vocal booths. <laughs> so, Kate, how is uh, the work going at uh, Boombox? Is everybody still working from home? Everyone is still working from home. We've kind of, we've dug in. There was, I'm sure for everybody, there was a period where we were all hopeful that we were going to get back into the office or, you know, that we were keeping a really close eye on how things were changing and all the updated mandates. And it got really complicated and, <laughs> and overwhelming to keep abreast of that at all times. So we finally just said, you know, everybody, this is working really well. Our clients are all happy. The workflow has streamlined. Honestly, I bet a bunch of clients will want to keep this workflow, especially since we have some productions that are split between New York and L.A. teams. And sometimes even there are parts of the puzzle overseas. So all of them are actually just really loving that we can work from home and that we can send files digitally, that there's a good workflow that doesn't have in-person. So we've told all of our personnel we're in this for the long haul you know, until there's a vaccine and we're all feeling safe and it's not just about local mandates and things that we're we're just really going to hold out for that vaccine until we invite everybody back to the office again. We have a few key personnel who go in and use the mixed stage by themselves and they sanitize and they wear a mask if they ever are in a common area, but they, for the most part, enter through a door directly to the stage they're in there by themselves and then they leave again um, just in order to use the equipment. I was able to set up my mix rig at home. I happen to have a, a home studio in the garage. Work has picked back up again and I would say it's honestly exploding even more than before COVID. There was a little bit of a lull right around like March to July or so while people were trying to get their schedules back up and running. But now... We're just getting asked to do a lot of bids with Netflix and all the different streaming options doing so well during this crisis. You know, it puts us in a place that's very fortunate compared to some other people who are in film and television. Yeah, we're just kind of rocking and rolling and getting used to doing, uh, quote unquote, studio tours, you know, via Zoom. <laughs> and, 
how to navigate that whole kind of business and social aspect of how do you check in with clients when you can't ask them out to coffee? You know, how do you stay connected when you don't see people face to face every week? So we're continuing to refine things, but it's going well. Excellent. Thanks for that update. That's good to know. I think that's kind of par for the course for everybody right now. Some people have gone back in, but the majority of people are still working from home. And, uh, you know, screenings and spotting sessions via Zoom, it's a tricky situation. But let's get into the nitty gritty of sound design for animation for kids. So I recently had a situation that kind of really well illustrated how doing sound design for children can be tricky because I had an episode of the series I'm working on that involved a windstorm. And I got this new plugin called Wind Machine, which is kind of like an instrument where you can play the wind. And I thought it was going to be really great. And the plugin is really great for the record. But I couldn't find a wind that was kind of kid-friendly. If you need horror sound design, this Wind Machine plugin is for you. Sci-fi, I found a million settings that were amazing. But kind of strong breeze that wasn't scary or edgy for the kids... I couldn't find one for it. So this is a plugin that I'm going to use down the line that I think I'm going to really love, but it just wasn't right for little kids. It couldn't produce that sound. And uh, I'm wondering if you guys have examples of how you navigate that line of what's too scary or what's too edgy for kids. And I think maybe Gravity Falls would be a great example, Heather, if you want to talk about that a little bit, because it's kind of a horror story, but it's also funny and uh, kid-friendly. Yeah, Gravity Falls is actually, I mean, we did not go overboard making it kid-friendly. He was like, scarier, <laughs> scarier, louder, harder, hits, everything. I mean, it, it was not, it wasn't being done down at all. I think the only thing keeping it from being super scary Stranger Things is that it's animated. Because that was a terrifying show. <laughs> <laughs> Have uh, you ever run into anything like this, Dom, where you had to childify some sounds? Oh, lots of times. I mean, Octonauts, there was, there was quite a few examples of that because um, one of the guiding principles that kind of started developing from the start of the show was that they're always underwater, so that's their safe place. So actually, the kind of typical Hollywood treatment that you might kind of see with the underwater stuff, the kind of deep filtering, um, we did none of that. So it was actually really pulled back. So it was actually more the absence of sounds. There was actually, oh, this is a safe place. This is their normal environment. It was only when, a bit like your windstorm, there was like an underwater hurricane or, you know, whirlpool and all this kind of stuff. It was only then that sounds kind of really ramped up. It was more the absence of danger meant that when it actually did it did appear, and it was like, okay, the creatures are kind of in trouble, you know, but they always kind of get rescued, so it's all okay. We kind of did it one way or that, and then probably a bit like Gravity Falls, like the last Transformers series I did, there was quite a few moments where... We actually ended up kind of killing characters. So <laughs> we had to be a little bit careful with that kind of stuff. And just a little bit of Waller just kind of made it kind of a bit less threatening. They weren't dead. They were still alive. But in, rea <laughs> in, re in reality, they were dead. <laughs> you don't see them again. And obviously, because they're all robots, the voice treatments was kind of actually became quite a big kind of part of it as well. Because there, there wasn't always room for them to all be big heavy footsteps and all that kind of big servos there just isn't that kind of space once you have all the score and everything else so it was actually with the voice treatments if you could put like just a distortion it could just be a little kind of synth edge you kind of try to give the characters just a jagged edge just so you kind of know this they're they're the bad guys you know <laughs> doesn't always have to be deep voices again because the medium that most of it still gets watched on tvs ipads all that kind of stuff the base thing doesn't always kind of work. So it's kind of, 
you got to think about the higher range too, you know. Paw Patrol is like a high action show where a lot of the excitement is generated by these dramatic set pieces involving engines and people zooming around and flying on jets and stuff like that. But I know having sat in on mixes, like we do get that note, like it's too much, it's too much. And yet you're also being told like we have to make it bigger at the same time. So there's similar tricks, simplifying the the low end on the show and, and pushing low end a little bit less than you would want to maybe. Well, in Paw Patrol, there's kind of a theory that there's two parts of every episode. There's the part where they're goofy little pups and the problem emerges. And then there's the part where they get in their special vehicles and are given their mission. And then it's more high tech. And the way we kind of tackle the show is that when they're the goofy pups and they're not in their little suits and their vehicles, it's a kind of a traditional cartoon. So we use lots of boings and zings and, uh, It's not actually Hanna-Barbera sounds, but that kind of palette of sounds. Mm -hmm. And then once they get their mission and get in their vehicles, then it becomes mechanical, you know, actual machines and stuff like that. And so that's kind of how we tackled it. We've also kind of tackled it in that when something is not actually on the screen, we hardly hear it at all. So if two cars are racing each other beside each other... When we're in one car, we're not hearing the other car at all. We're trying to simplify, bring down the amount of sound so the kids only have to focus on certain things at a time. That's kind of an animation constant that I've found that people want to do. Like, see it, hear it. Don't see it, don't hear it. Which was weird to me because I came from a live action background. So when I first came to animation, they're like, what's all this stuff happening over there? I'm like, but the thing, no, no, he's gone. Forget Forget it. (laughs) Completely gone. Exactly. So that's something that, like you were saying, I came from, you know, doing movies of the week and documentaries and stuff like that. You know, if there's a police truck with a siren going and then you cut to the vehicle right beside him, obviously that siren's got to keep going. But a lot of time in uh, the animation that I'm cutting, they don't want that. And there's other things like all the pups in Paw Patrol have little collars on with medallions on them. And the first episode I cut with the jingling all over the place and the director was just like, nope, that's all got to go. And the footsteps, I had little claws for every footstep and no, that's got to go. So we had to simplify the footsteps and take kind of the claw element out of the footsteps. Dumb it down isn't the right word because it's not necessarily dumber. It's less uh, busy. But then when things are less busy, it means what you do put in has to be perfect. You can't hide. There's less places to hide things. Yeah, more focused. I feel like everybody wants to be more focused because the kids, they see something like flashing and exciting and they're completely like off the track of what you want them to be focusing on. Right. And so with sound, it's the same thing, too. If you had an off screen siren that they haven't seen for, you know, even 15 seconds or something, all of a sudden they're like, hey, mom, what's that fire truck doing? You know, (laughs) we want to keep them ultra, ultra focused in animation. I totally agree with that. There's an economy of editing, you know. I'm sure we'll get onto schedules later on, but like, <laughs> you know, that too. <laughs> if, if, if you know, that's got to be a, a consideration as well. If you don't need to be put it in, you don't put it in. As I say, Transformers, Danger Mouse was another show I worked on where there was lots of stuff going on. We can talk about sound effects, but there's also generally score going on. Certainly Danger Mouse, there was pretty constant score and it was really good music. So you don't really want to be filling it all up with sounds that are off screen. You know, it's like, it's like, that's a great team. I'm just going to accent this chase or whatever with bits of car here and there. And you don't always kind of need to fill everything up. And dialogue's still king. So if they're having a big chase, but they're still talking, then you still have to kind of. And they will be. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) They always try and explain the plot during a car chase. (laughs) (laughs) That's a rule of thumb. (laughs) 
Yeah, I feel like <laughs> maybe we, we'll try and draw up 10 things animation directors could maybe think about stop doing uh, to make That's everything near the top sound for better. Me, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why don't we talk about score a little bit? Because the thing about a certain style of children's animation score is that it plays the action and simultaneously it's also commenting, it's also coloring, like giving the mood of each line that's delivered sometimes. Like a show like Pig Goat Banana Cricket, like uh, Dave Cooper's type shows are so fast. Do you find the score in that show was trying to do a lot? Things that maybe otherwise would be done by effects are being covered by the score. The hard part of the schedules that we have, I think, probably for everyone, is I often don't see the music until after it's been mixed. Sometimes when I watch the show back, I'm like, well, that's an interesting music choice. Or the music, the composer will put in something that sounds like a sound effect. And I'm like, what? why? What is happening mm-hmm. here? So actually, Pig Out, I'm not sure that I've heard much of the music. I just remember like when we did the sound effects, we covered everything. And I think I made, they, they must have made a lot of those decisions in the mix. But it's hard to make those decisions when we don't have all the information, which they don't until you get to the mix. Sure. Yeah. How about from a mixer's perspective? Anybody have uh, some thoughts on how the score and the effects are like competing for playing certain things? From my perspective, they nearly always compete. Yeah. <laughs> 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 When I kind of get the editors kind of do the edit, I do try and get them to cover as much as possible because some directors like to cut the music and you don't want to over rely on the score that may be not there when we get to the mix. So that's definitely one kind of consideration. And I think it also kind of depends on the style of the animation as well. Like when I look at a show, it's kind of right. What's the age range? What type of animation? Is it 2D? Is it 3D? 2D is obviously very snappy, very quick animation. You know, they can zip out of frame like in just one frame you know and mm-hmm. they're gone um whereas the 3d stuff is obviously much more flowing you kind of got to build a rhythm between it all so it's a bit like tim was saying earlier like once something is off screen it's off screen whereas 3d you might kind of ease it out a little bit more and i think that goes with the music as well it just the, you're, you're not fading stuff in just really sharply your kind of waves softly softly approach it's kind of just weaving it all together really i like directors who cut music because um, I think it can really help moments if you get stems then that's brilliant that really helps the process a lot if there's any kind of retakes that something has kind of changed kind of timing as well just gives you that power in the mix just to kind of tweak stuff and really tighten it up with the sound effects and music working together and the dialogue and it just makes those moments so much better sometimes you know yeah I would really love to normalize the idea that composers should be checkerboarding their cues, they should be stemming their cues, yeah. they should maybe even be laying up their own cues. <laughs> <laughs> we send an email at the beginning of every project, like we ask permission first, and then we just contact the composer directly and say, like, these are our requirements. <laughs> we make sure everybody's on board with us making demands, but uh, mm-hmm. but that really helps us at this stage so that you're not stepping on toes and making people feel like they're getting a a slap on the wrist for doing it wrong. We send a really nice email that goes, we know you don't need to know any of this. You're so professional that you would never not send us stems. You would never not give us a two pop, you know, (laughs) Um, but at least then you're, you're, you're making them want to live up to good expectations too. I find that that really helps whether you're the sound supervisor or you can ask your sound supervisor to like go ahead 
ahead and send that email, it makes the world of a, of a difference. Yeah, it's always super nerve-wracking the morning of the first mix of a new series when you're the mixer and you're not sure what you're going to be loading up into your session. The, the main key is to make sure that you get the stems, which I think is basically becoming par for the course now. I haven't worked on anything in a little while that I haven't got stems with. But uh, something that I found I'm doing more and more of is the, the composers are composing dead on to the picture. So, you know, when the big explosion happens, that's right when the huge orchestral hit hits. And uh, the mixer and I, for the shows I've been working on lately, we are constantly moving the music five frames, you know, pulling it back five frames, sometimes moving it forward five frames, just to make that differentiation so that the music and the sound effects can both have their moment. Yeah, definitely doing that. Yeah, yeah, same. And again, probably even cut music sometimes just to give that even bit more impact, you know, depends on how the music works and if there's a kind of nice way to kind of cut it. But if, if they're generally doing a nice kind of rise up to it, then you let your explosion kind of be your nice kind of hit and then score can come back in underneath the tail and away you go again. There's only so much space for everything and it's animation. So they can put as much as they want into the frames. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be live action where everything's a prop and all that kind of stuff, you know? So it's um, really kind of sorting out what needs to be heard and when is probably one of the most important jobs that I kind of do. You don't always get it right, but like you give them options and that's all you can do, you know? Yeah, I don't generally mute music or move it like without the input from the clients just because, yeah, sometimes it can really step on toes and, and things like that, at least with the people that I work with. And and when you mute it, it also affects, you know, like the payment for the composers and stuff like that. So usually I'll, I will definitely have things that I'll come into the mix as questions, you know, like, hey, I made a marker here. I was thinking, what if we did this? Would you like to hear that kind of scenario? You know, what's been interesting is during COVID, now that we're doing these Zoom spots and previews, I actually for the first time have several projects. And this this was starting to happen before before we went into COVID, so maybe it's just the direction of the industry. Two things are happening. One, I have a few projects that have joint spot and previews with the composer for each episode where they spot music with sound effects. I think they're just trying to knock it all out in one awkward Zoom meeting, which is actually really nice because it, again, offers the ability to communicate with the composers in like a really fruitful way where we don't step on anybody's toes. We always start with a compliment and then move on to like a request, you know, so like, oh, like this is you do such fantastic synth work here in these action scenes. And usually you have these great drum beats. I was thinking, what if we don't focus on the horse hooves? But then when she falls off the cliff, what if like we just go to no score and I could do this really cool slow-mo, you know, like low end bass drop, like a without the score in the way. And we can have that back and forth where like I give a little, they give a little, and we pre-plan. So at least that way, when we go into the mix, the clients know what to expect. They've really enjoyed hearing that back and forth, and they feel like they're getting two professionals that are are interested in working together. It was something that I was definitely a little bit more resistant to the idea of when it was posed, those joint spots and previews, because as you can imagine, we're on, we keep saying this, but we're all on super compressed schedules. And I'm thinking, well, if it usually takes an hour to spot, like, I don't want to take two hours, then we have a two hour preview. And then I'm like four hours into my day, you know, <laughs> but it really hasn't ended up being much longer than a regular spot or preview. It's just a little bit more collaborative. And the other interesting thing that's happened is I've been getting more and more clients asking to have 
the music preview like stereo comp file that the composer gives to them sent to me and I put it into my preview. And so I'll mix it in, which again, takes a little bit longer. It wasn't something that I was like super keen on doing. So I just ride the fader and I don't worry about like mixing the dialogue or anything. I just try and make it audible. And some for some shows, I'll upload a with and a without music. So I just have to make two quick times, which... Again, I wasn't making quick times before, but now I am. So if they want to check a specific spot, they can just go to the quick time, click on that time code rather than having to listen all the way through. It allows me as a supervisor too to say like in this moment, what are the sound effects that are really poking through? You know, if there's a giant explosion where a dynamite has gone off and a cave is crashing in, this is, you guys like know this is something that happens like every episode in animation and <laughs> something like that. Then And there's like this big score hit on it, then I'm going to mute all of the suspense stingers that we put in just in case there wasn't score. Because I know my mixer doesn't want them. I can decide like what tonalities are fitting with the music. We definitely don't need the strings, but I'll keep the big drum hit that we put in because that's working well and seems to really like amp up what the composer put. So, you know, it's interesting that those collaborations with music, they've really borne a lot of fruit on the mix stage for us. I think that the client and the composer are kind of having the first run through. And some of the clients that I've worked with, it would be like, oh, hit this. Oh, and hit this. Oh, and hit this too. Oh, and make sure you hit this. So the composer, especially because they're also like not getting a ton of time to work on it, may end up just doing a wall to wall, like hit everything in their initial pass. They are told right off the bat, hit everything. And then there's no room for anything else on the other side. So I did that a little bit at the end of one of the last series I worked on where we had a little bit more collaboration. We were able to like have the sound effects department also have their stuff heard in pre-mix, right? It got better because the client stopped thinking of everything as something that the composer would hit and started imagining what it would be like when sound effects hit it. And then things loosened up. And sometimes it helps to, like in animation, I don't know how much the listeners know about the process, but there's the animatic process, which is, you know, all the voices get recorded and everything, and then the director will have storyboards done, and that is timed up to be a video that's in time with the dialogue, and that's what they send overseas to get animated to. It's called the animatic. Um, Sometimes they call it a Leica too, uh, depending if they want to reference the old technology. Sometimes we do sound design on the shows that we do, especially the long running things that have a lot of signature sound. And we'll bounce those down and give them to the picture editors, to the animatic editors specifically, so that they can throw those things in. So if we're working on like a big car show or a show that always has giant robots or explosions, they can use our sounds as the temp effects, um, not just for timing and to get the directors uh, used to the sound of them, but also just so that they can imagine what's there. And then they give that in the guide track to us, again, in post, but also to the composer. And the composer knows, oh, but you guys are going to hit this with this cool signature sound that's always there. You know, like I worked on a Transformers animated um, show before all that stuff moved overseas a long time ago. But, you know, you don't want to miss the er, 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 er. You know, it's always there. <laughs> so, like, if you're just scored right over that with a bunch of, like, fast notes, it makes it really hard to hear. So just getting those kind of things in early and getting people used to them, sometimes the collaboration rather than 
keeping those signature sounds to yourself and guarding them with your life, it's great to give them back to the production because it really makes your job a whole lot easier when you get to post. It's also one less thing you got to cut, even if it's a small sound, you know. And one less thing that you have to fight about, you know, changing or sounding different from the temp, too. Mm. It's everybody's used to it. We've already agreed on it. Um, and then you're just kind of gussying it up and making it fit the timing properly when it when it hits post. Mm-hmm. Yes, temp love is real. That is a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, sometimes in a, in, a, in a mix, the director will say, what was there for the temp? I was like, I really like that. And you play back to him. It's like, yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, and they go, it was so much better. And then you, you play it and they go, no, no, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. And you go, no, it was. You just liked it when it was like in in your bedroom. you know. Yeah. But now that we're on yeah. the mix stage, it's it's not working. The one yeah. I've had yeah. a bit of back and forth with uh, is when the like editor, they're like, oh, we just want to temp in a sound. He'll go on the internet. He'll just rip something off the internet. And that'll go into the Leica, and that is the sound effect that goes all the way through the animation process, sometimes something specific, so that they're actually animating to the particular tempo of that sound. And we get to the back end, and we're like, where did this come from? So ah, I just ripped it off the internet. I'm like, well, we're not using that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so a little dialogue, even with the Leica editor, yeah. I find that the studios are getting a little bit better about that. I feel like that was more of a problem earlier. Yeah. In micro- Actually, with Gravity Falls specifically, there was a lot of temp love and a lot of internet love. Mm-hmm. And finally, we all had the conversation with them like, it's great that you want to put all these sound effects in to get the idea of it early, but you need to have your own sound effects library or something so that if you really like it, you can use it. I'm not offended. Yeah. I am offended when you say I got this from some YouTube video and I want you to recreate it. I'm like, I, I don't own that. I don't know where it is. Or this is from the movie with this music. I just make that sound. You're like, I, OK, I'll do what I can, but it's never going to be that. Yeah. And yeah. I found I like it's a weird thing because you're like, it's not our sound. I also have to crack the whip a little bit on like right, the rights angle of it is like, do you guys really want to be liable for having something slip through yeah. and everybody's kind of like well yeah i guess so and i'm like well i don't know i want to be i want to work with integrity and so i have to bring it to your attention and find another solution which is usually like having an ongoing dialogue with the animatic editor the like editor to remind him or her like come to me you know you want something come to me i'll find you something good and i'll find it fast and you can throw it in, and that'll be the sound we're going to use moving forward. Yeah, I think the the six million dollar man, <laughs> that kind of sound effect is one that like I that just keeps coming up. A- any kind of slow mo that gets dropped in, it's like no, you can't use that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, I get that one all the time. The one that drives me nuts is when they animate an animal or something's actual yeah. mouth, and then we can't use the sound and you're locked into that timing. You cannot adjust it at all. We always find a way to make it work, but it would be better not to have those constraints. You could make something cooler. I I worked on a show recently with dinosaurs in it, and of course they came to me in the spotting session and were like, we just want this to sound exactly like Jurassic Park. Just put all the Jurassic... Okay, and you want me to do this in five days? Okay, yeah, mm -hmm, no problem. Uh, But they had a Brachiosaurus, I think, the super tall one with the long neck. And they wanted it to sound like the Jurassic Park sound, and its mouth opened and closed in a second. And the Jurassic Park sound is this long, like, elephantine-like thing. 
that was probably the hardest sound I've ever had to get approval on. I went back and forth like 20 times on that uh, to finally compromise on the sound that would work with both the animation and, you know, the idea in our heads of what that's supposed to sound like. Uh, so yeah, if they had just come to me six months earlier and asked me for a little library of bron brontosaurus sounds, you know, because I would have just gone recorded <laughs> one down the street. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we could have solved that problem way earlier if we had been on it. Hey there, we're going to wrap up this episode here. This talk about sound animation got away from us a bit as we went way past our target length for this conversation. We were just having so much fun talking to these awesome guests. So we're going to cut it here and pick it back up again in a second episode coming out shortly. In part two, we talk about the tricky balancing act of compressed schedules for series animation, hard lessons we learned early in our career, and also how we have to respect how important these shows are to the young viewers that watch them so much. A massive thanks goes out to Rob Spate for volunteering to edit and mix this episode and the upcoming part two. He has worked internationally as a sound designer and audio engineer over the last 25 years. Rob was great to work with and everyone should look him up at robspate.com. That's R-O-B-S-P-E-I-G-H-T.com or follow him at Twitter at Rob S. Sound. Okay, thanks for listening today. Stay tuned for part two and we'll see you soon. Have a great one. Filmbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. If you are interested in more pro-audio related content, stay tuned to hear what other members of the Audio Podcast Alliance are releasing. To learn more and find links to other shows similar to Tonebenders, go to audiopodcast.org. Hi all, this is Becky and Susan from the Sound Girls Podcast, where we speak to audio professionals from all walks of life. Join us Tuesdays at 9am and listen to the amazing array of sound humans talk about how they got into the biz. And a few cool things, like roadie nicknames and fizzy water preferences. You can find the Sound Girls podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as our website, soundgirls.org. Hi, everyone. This is Michael Helms, host of the Location Sound podcast. Each episode, we talk with production sound mixers, boom ops, and other film industry pros about the various aspects of recording sound on location for TV shows, features, and independent films. Our past guests have worked on projects like HBO's Beep, the Netflix series House of Cards, Discovery's Naked and Afraid, and so much more. We do talk a little tech, but then we get into the stories of working behind the scenes on set. This is the Location Sound Podcast.